0: Amen. You can be seated. Glad you're with us this morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors here. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to be in Romans chapter eleven. Romans chapter eleven. So if you can turn or tap your way to the book of Romans, chapter eleven. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, please don't panic. We'll put those words on the screen and we're going to kind of be jumping. It's a little disingenuous to say we're in Romans chapter eleven, because we're kind of everywhere, but mostly in Romans chapter eleven. Uh, and if you don't have copies of the Scriptures, we'd love to give you a copy in a Modern English Translation on your way out. In this series, we've been talking about how you work. And the reason is not because we want to give you more to do. I do want to give you a lot more to do. But the reason for this series is not that. The reason for this series is because... Many people don't see a connection between how they love and glorify God and how they spend most of their waking hours. That's a problem. So we started a whole series on it. We started by talking about how work is good. It doesn't seem that way, but it is. It was a good gift by God. We had that conviction as believers that God gave work before the fall as part of creation and part of the creation that God looked out at and said, this is good. Then we talked about how, no, it's also not so good now. Yeah, it started good, but there was the fall. There was this break that took place when we disobeyed God and sin and death and destruction entered the world, decay, took what was good and has twisted it. And now it's not very good. Yes, you do put a lot of work in. And yes, you have these beautiful aspirations. And yes, sometimes it still just all falls apart. And even if you did have this perfect situation for how you could bring about the dream that you have for the world, you're still falling apart. You're still not as smart as you thought you should be. You're still a little bit lazy. You still kind of get lost uh, with a lot of other temptations. There are things that are broken about work. And... God has called us to glorify Him with the way that we work. We talked about last week, kind of an abstract version of that. We brought it a little closer in talking about how God does have concern for justice in the world and how you can help bring that about through what you do. might have to be creative to make that work, but it's possible. And this week, I want to talk about three more ways that get nitty-gritty about how what you do with your job either honors God or doesn't. The back two are a little bit more obvious, so I'm going to spend more time on the first one, which is a little less obvious. But if you'll understand it, it'll allow you not only to glorify God with the job that you're doing, but to be incredibly thankful, to be incredibly grateful for the number of people around you who are also, whether they realize it or not, Doing God's work. So let's read from Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. In the book of Romans, we have this picture of the gospel. It's an 11 chapter, 8 chapter really, picture of the gospel with a three chapter sort of difficult argument. This guy Paul, he tells us about the beauty of the gospel. And then he has to address this very difficult situation about how the Jews and the Gentiles are both saved or not. And at the end of a very trying, difficult discussion, he erupts in song. And at the end of the song, and it's, it's, it's a song at the end of this big gospel presentation. So I want you to understand that the facts that are presented in this song weave their way back all throughout the full counsel of God that's been given up to this point. So it's it's. It's marrow and bone in what we believe. All parts, but definitely in this work thing too. Here's what he says. Oh, the depth, the riches, and the wisdom, and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Oh, I would really love to hear Maymay say, Inscrutable, his ways. (laughs) That would be really cute if you know her. That's kind of inside. Okay. What he's doing here, he's a Coke bottle that's been shaken up and shaken up for 11 chapters. And now, boom, anytime you have a, a sentence that begins with O in Scripture, How often do you do that? They just opened up eclairs across the parking lot. You go get one of those. After the first bite, you say, oh. (laughs) That's what's happening here. Oh. He's saying this is too much. The oh is a vocalization of words failing. What's happening is too much, it's too powerful. He, he's saying that the gospel that brings sinful people to be before God, it's so far beyond anything we ever would have thought of. It's so far beyond any mercy we ever would have thought was possible from even a good ruler. We don't deserve it, and yet he's giving it. Here's another place. It's a very similar style. We call them doxologies, which is a terrible, terrible word. Use the word praise. Use the word song. Use the word that means something. Don't encapsulate it in something wooden. But he's saying at the end of Jude something similar. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory, Angels can't be in the presence of his glory, and you're going to stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. The only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What he's saying is what Paul is saying. It's the reason that they're they're screaming out in these songs. It's the reason that they're trying to take these thoughts and put them into some sort of poetry in order to express the beauty of what's happened. He's saying that you, by the gospel, by the grace of the Lord shown to us through what Jesus did, Jesus being God, he dies for us. He's made a man and he dies for us to make a way for our sin to be paid for. He now makes this way for us to be Saved, And what we mean by saved is that you can now go. At one point, you know, when you die, you go to be before the Lord and you can stand in the presence of his glory with joy, blameless, with joy. I, I don't think you get it. To stand in the glory of God. When I say angels can't stand in his glory, there are things that he purpose-built to fly around in his glory. And he gave them extra wings so they could hide their face because the glory is so magnificent. It's so overwhelming. To say that you will stand in his glory is like me telling you, hey, we've got this way now. We're going to put you on the face of the sun with great joy. You'd be like, no, no. I don't know what happens at those temperatures. I don't know if you melt or if you just, you know, just disappear. You just evaporate and become non-being immediately. I don't know what happens, but it's not good. You don't want to do that. Elon Musk will take you to Mars. Don't go on whoever's trying to take you to the face of the sun. That's what we're hearing, though. He's saying the presence of his glory. You should say no. But that's the magnitude of the gospel. Yes. It's like saying he's going to take you and put you at the bottom of the sea, and you would say, no. If the temperature doesn't kill you, the pressure would just, again, what does it do to a person if it takes a submarine and twists it into a little tin can? What does it do to a person? How can you stand in the presence of the glory of God? But he's saying that's exactly what happens in the gospel oh my gosh. And then he goes even further and he gets a little bit more specific because as you see the magnificence of what God's done in the gospel, he gets more specific in helping you see how magnificent God is full stop. You don't know how he came up with his plan. You never would have had this plan. How unbelievable his wisdom. Who's known the mind of this Lord? Who could be his counselor? And then he taps into, and this is kind of the the background for what I want us to understand. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God is the source of everything. He goes further. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. That's language. You know, we can talk about uh, Kelsey's little daughter not understanding things. Okay, how well you understand verse 36. It's saying something so big here. What he's saying, he's talking about how God in his goodness is so fully responsible for everything that is, that everything that is comes from, through, to him, including your work. Not just the good ones, not just the things that glorify him because you actually were speaking the gospel or working for social justice or something. Just the mundane. Here's what he says in Job 41, 11. Who's given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. The funniest way I've heard it said is C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, he said, it's like a small child going to its father and saying, daddy, give me sixpence to buy you a birthday present. Of course, the father does, and he's pleased with the child's present. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the father is sixpence to the good on the transaction. Word. Also, let me introduce you to these idiots. That's kind of what we think. God has given you your wisdom. He's given you your knowledge. He's given you society that's brought about whatever education you've kind of attained or gotten to and expertise you've got. He gave you the job. He gives you gravity so you don't go floating away. He gives you air to breathe in and breathe out. He is the life that is your spirit so that you don't just fall down and turn back into dust. And as you go about your work, you don't really even think about Him. It seems to you in your ignorance, and again, this is me too, I'm being a little bit mean, but I'm also a part of the bad guys here. In your ignorance, you kind of think this is your own thing that you're doing to get your own paycheck with which you will do kind of whatever you want. Take that apart and instead put in what the scripture is saying here. From him, through him, and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. It says in 1 Corinthians four seven, who has done anything? Who sees anything different in you? <laughs> he's saying like, yo, I'm this important, and she's that important, and then he's this important, which means I must really be this important. And and Paul's looking out at all these people and goes, who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Everything that you have comes from him. Now, the implication of that is that what you go and do as a job, it is actually God's way of doing whatever it is that you do for the people that you do it for. God provides whatever it is that you do for the world, he provides that for the world through you. If it's all for his glory... I'm telling you that when you do the mundane, when you do the everyday, that's God's way of providing that thing to the world. And we need it. It's writ large what happens in the body of Christ as well. You're different. You're a thing that is a specific piece, a specific part of a system. And the system needs you to do that part so that we all benefit doesn't seem like it's very important maybe what you're doing, but I want you to think about the enormous number of people involved in even the simplest part of your day. Think about your chair you're in right now. At Hope Church, these salt mine chairs, they kind of lean back a little bit. You lounge a little bit. They're great. They're made out of metal. The quote I'm about to read says wood, but, you know, use your imagination. Look at the chair you're lounging in. Could you have made it for yourself? How would you get, say, the wood? You go and you fell a tree, but only after you first make the tools for that. And then you got to put together some kind of a vehicle to haul the wood and then construct a mill to do the lumber and the roads to drive on from place to place. In short, it would take you a lifetime or two to make one chair. He's right. YouTube's crazy. It shows you all kinds of stuff. You can go on YouTube and watch there are these people that are like super self-sufficient. And they make things. And so there'll be a video of a guy and he's like making his own spoon. And then at the end of the video, he's eating soup with his own spoon. And you're like, wow, I just go buy spoons. I had no idea how one would make a spoon. And they're often in like Alaska or somewhere where they're just kind of very, you know, independent. And it's impressive. But think for a moment about how not independent it really is. It's only independent compared with me that goes to like Target for everything. It's not that independent, really. He is actually dependent on all the people that have taught him the skills that he has. He is actually dependent on all these tools that he's using to bring about this cool thing that he can make for himself. Like I said, a lot of them are in Alaska, and they're fun videos. They're cool. You can watch them on mute because there's really not much like sound. They're not telling you how to do it. They're just showing you. It's great for when you're on a Zoom call and you have to look at a screen. You just put that up there and turn off the volume and kind of nod along to whatever somebody else is saying. I don't know if that's ethical. Maybe you can apply the things you're learning about sacred work to decide if you should do that or not. But when you do, you'll see that even though they seem very self-sufficient, they're still usually using some kind of a tool they've gotten somewhere else. And they're almost always wearing, like, Gore-Tex or something that they definitely got from somewhere else. How else are you going to get through the winters in these places? You're not self-sufficient. Now... Turn that around and see that the work that you do do through the week is providing some sort of a service or good for other people. They need it. If you're an air conditioning repairman, God is presenting the world with air conditioning through you. What a good gift. Right now we would say heat maybe, but in a couple of months, thank you, Lord, for air conditioning. If you seen these swamp coolers on people's houses? How do they exist with those? No, give me the good stuff, and air conditioning men do come and bring air conditioning, and that's God's way of presenting the world with this good gift. If you're a plumber, Anthony Cole, Ghost Hope Church, he's a plumber. He gives God's gift of plumbing to the world. Thank you, Lord, for plumbing. And he brings that about through people like Anthony. Now, if you just kind of stop this whole argument for a second, would you think that Anthony was serving God by doing plumbing? You may say that he was serving God by doing plumbing and also something else, but I'm not talking about the something else. I'm just talking about turning the wrench. God does his work through you. Listen to this crazy quote. So Tim Keller, the writer of the book Every Good Endeavor, we've been leaning on that resource a lot through this. He says... There may be no better way to love your neighbor. That is quite a setup for a sentence. Jesus said the whole of the law of God fits into these two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Then he illustrates by having this good Samaritan take a guy that got beat up that he shouldn't have any love for. And instead of just walking right past or maybe kicking him or like checking the body for coins. He picks the guy up, puts him on his donkey drives him to a hospital hotel, and pays his bills. That's the level of neighbor that Jesus posts in this concept of who you're supposed to love and how well you're supposed to love them. It's an unbelievable commandment. It's a crushing weight if you take it seriously. And listen to what Keller says. There may be no better way to love your neighbor, whether you're writing parking tickets, software, or books, than to simply Do your work. But only skillful and competent work will do. Amen. What is your job? What does it do? Why do people pay you to do it? Because it provides something. Go back to Romans 11. From him, through him, to him are all things. This is his. And he's doing that through you. You're serving your neighbor. You're loving your neighbor. Doing that, of course, of course, it's a sacred calling. The sacred calling of being a librarian. Now, you think about librarians, you think about the cartoon version. The cartoon version of a librarian is a very thin woman with big glasses and like a Kleenex that she somehow got on like a hairband on her wrist. And she's mean, and all she does is shush you. But my children don't see librarians that way, because when my kids go to the library, the librarian is the one who opens up the world for them. She hands them books if they're preliterate, you, know, not great at reading. she gives them ones with lots of pictures. But if not, she gives them books that open up the world to them. A librarian is a wizard in their minds. You walk into her little coven, and who knows what kind of wild stories and imaginative journeys she's going to just blow your brain up with. That's magical. That's musical. That's beautiful. Is that how you think about librarians? Oh, my gosh. We could keep going and going and going. Name the career. You know, somebody's an accountant for a program, and all that program does is is help meetings be more efficient. Great. Great. You're somehow accounting for this thing that allows us to barter in imaginary numbers rather than bringing cattle around from place to place trying to buy eclairs with, you know, eggs or whatever. Thank you. Magical. Beautiful. Miraculous. And what I'm saying, really, technically, miraculous. It's God's work in the world. It's what you're doing. (laughs) Wow. I don't know if you're understanding how beautiful this is. However... As the um, reformer Martin Luther brought out, God gives the world milk through the milkmaid. The, in his time, it was a very stratified culture. You had people on top and you had people on bottom and all these kind of middle people in between. And the people on bottom were, yeah, they were the peasanty, blue collar y people. And on the bottom of the bottom, were the women. Now, before you get upset at Martin Luther, it was the Germans. And I know we're all aware of how famously open-minded the Germans are, but in that time, yeah, they were a little sexist about ladies or whatever. And so his example was trying to pull from the bottom of the bottom and say that God is working through the milkmaid. Through that lady, he's providing milk for the world. Through you, he's providing whatever you do for the world. You're literally his hands. So, hear the end of that quote from Keller. Only skillful, competent work will do. He's pulling from Colossians 3 there. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Christ. Yeah. (laughs) So, do it well. Work hard, but work skillfully. This might be a reason to actually change your job. Not because the job isn't important enough for you, but because you may not be skillful enough for that job. You may need to go find something else that you can do better. Because the job of being a milkmaid is too holy a calling to be done with incompetence. Do you understand? Wow. It's crucially important that we do what God has called us to do. It is crucially important to see what we do as a sacred calling. God can take whatever it is that you do, and he can use it to serve the world by doing what you do. If you're mathy, there's all kinds of things you can do. There's a million jobs out there. If you're creative, there's all kinds of things you can do. There's so many jobs that are out there. But if you're lazy, biblically, we're not even supposed to feed you. You have to work, and you have to work hard. I'm telling you that it's a glorious thing because you're actually working in what you do for the glory of God. I also want you to be generous like God. I say there's a less obvious one. I hope I've made my point. There's two more obvious ones, so we'll take less time on them. You, as you work, are able to be generous like God is generous. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Through him, you then are able to take what you do and be generous like God is generous. I think some people maybe come into church and they have jobs where they make good money. And it's a little hard to see maybe how that helps other people. And you know, they walk into church where everybody's supposed to have this very love one another ethos, and maybe they meet other people who are like social workers or teachers or doctors or whatever. And they see those as like people helper jobs and mine as just, you know, making good deals where people make a lot of money. And so they see themselves maybe, not as less important, humility is not that easy to find, but at least as something they want to hide themselves a little bit in. Well, don't do that. God has given you the opportunity to make that money in order to be generous. Here's what it says in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. God may have given you that job that pays that well so that you can find needs out in the community, needs of people that you know and love, and just take care of them. Certainly, God has given all of us the command to give to the mission of God. We're not going to apologize for telling you to give to Hope Church. That's what the scripture says. But while that command is true for everybody, God has also given some people the gift of giving. It means that over and above the sort of percentage-type giving that most people do to, to break that idol of money in their own heart and remember where all this good stuff comes from, there's also people that God has given the gift to make tremendous amounts of money with, all relative, in order to just be generous with it. That's a great thing. And maybe even if you don't consider yourself making a tremendous amount of money, look at what it says here. Let the thief no longer steal, but labor. So he's saying whatever it is that you do, if you used to do it for your own glory, now do it for God's glory. If you used to do something underhanded, don't do that anymore. Do something ethical. But even if all you do is you're just an honest day laborer, do it so well that you got something extra. It says that the people of God, when, when Acts, so Jesus comes, he dies, he rises from the dead, and then he ascends. And as he ascends, his disciples that are now called to lead on this movement of bringing his gospel to the ends of the earth receive the Holy Spirit. That happens in the first part of Acts. The Holy Spirit comes down. Jesus said that would happen at the end of John. As he leaves, the Comfort comes. The Holy Spirit comes, and he fills these people up, and they're like tongues of fire on them, and they're going out, and they're preaching the gospel, and all these wonderful things are happening. And the early part of the book of Acts is just telling you, it's describing thing after thing that happens as the Holy Spirit fills a group of people and the, the, the world turns upside down as the fall is unhappening in this place in Acts. And one of the characteristics is a radical generosity. It says in Acts chapter 2, 44 and 45, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, it's clear from the next couple of stories that these people weren't forced to give up everything they had. They chose to sell what they wanted to sell. And when they sold what they wanted to sell, they were allowed to keep as much for themselves as they wanted or to give as much as they wanted to the church. But what this verse is describing is not compulsion. It's not a new rule. What this verse is describing is a radical joy and generosity that says, I can't wait. I can't wait to take something more that I have and bless Somebody with it. If this stuff starts to take place the way that it should, our church won't really have that many needs. Because everybody who can work will work and work as to the Lord. You'll make fewer excuses. You'll get off your hind end more often and you'll get out there and do something. Because you're excited to do it. Because it's filled with meaning. Because you're enticed by joy. Because you're spurned on by the gospel that makes everything so wonderful and so peaceful. It gives you equipment to both enjoy and to suffer well. If that happens, this will be a church where we don't have as many needs because people will be taking care of each other, uh, taking care of themselves well. But there will still be needs. How wonderful to be a generous person who's ready to meet those needs. And then imagine that the community around us begins to understand that this is a place where love is. This is a place where some legitimate needs can be met. We begin to overflow for the glory of God. And you do what you do, that will bring glory to God. As it serves people, you know, again, duh, you know, if you're a prostitute or a murderer or whatever, don't do that for the glory of God. But if you do one of the jillion normal jobs out there, you do that for the glory of God. If you do it in such a way that you do have left over, For the glory of God, you can be generous through your work. Sacred. Finally, and I think this is the the most obvious, most important, maybe. One I'm not going to spend as much time on. But through your job, you're going to have a whole community of people that you interact with in such a way that you'll be able to introduce them to the Lord. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He's saying that when you do what you do with integrity, with love, with patience, filled with joy, suffering well but also enjoying well, with an ability to bring godlike qualities, not because you're God-like, but because you're taking things that he's teaching you and you're slowly to increasing degrees reflecting them out, you're gonna bring glory to God by doing that. Some people think that that's kind of the end of their job. You bring glory to God through doing these good works. You make other people see who God is by the way that you you know do your accounting or whatever. Well, no. You're called to speak, give a reason for the hope that's within you. You're called to seek out opportunities to share the gospel with other people around you. If all you do is work with integrity and you never actually speak, all you're doing is you're, you're renting out the theater. You're getting the audience. You're setting a perfect stage. You're getting the lighting just right. You get that opening act that's funny but not too funny. And then they're ready. They're softened up. They want you. They, they can't wait for you to speak, and you just don't show up. All these things that God tells you to do, they set this perfect stage, and the, the moment is right, the time is right for uh, Matthew 28, the last thing Jesus said before he goes at the end of Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I'm the boss now. Nobody can gainsay what I'm about to tell you. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So many sermons we can preach. But the command is the command. He's got the authority. He's telling you to do it. And he's gonna go with you. Now, if that scares you to death, great. Let's talk. It shouldn't. It's okay. It's worth it. It's fun and it's possible. Let's talk about how to do that together. But no matter what you walk out of here with, I want you to remember that it's possible for you to use your Monday through Friday, your Monday through Saturday, happening right now, for the glory of God. Do it. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, I pray that we become a people who work hard for your glory, who have your mind about the full provision that you give to the world that comes even through our day-to-day, our our everyday mundane, Father. Those those mundane things that we do are ways in which you provide for the world. For your glory, Father, I pray that we would work well. For your glory, Lord, I pray that as we work well, our, our good works would shine And we have opportunity to tell people about what makes us willing to sing Romans 11, 33 to 36. Maybe make us willing to sing Jude verses 24 and 25. That you make all things right, Father. That you can present us blameless before the presence of your glory with great joy. Father, make us those who speak. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.